Well, tonight we'll be turning in our Bibles to Mark chapter 13. And uh, as we get there, you know, uh, this is one of those topics that, that people typically get a little bit um, antsy about touching or even getting close to because it's, it's really a study of end times and it's from the mouth of Jesus. And so there's, there's always much controversy every time Jesus opens his mouth. There's uh, much controversy over what goes on and, and, and what he says. But what I want to point out is that no matter what your eschatological view or your view of the end times, it's always important to realize that Jesus didn't teach about what would go on in the end times in order to divide the church. He did it to spur them on to share their faith with those that without him uh, will spend eternity separated from God. And he also did it so that we, as the church, could be prepared for when the things did take place, we would be comforted to know that our Savior had told us ahead of time, this is what will take place. So last week, as we started in Mark chapter 13, in verses 5 through 8, Jesus had actually, he describes the general world conditions that would take place, that would exist between his ascension, his rising, not his resurrection from the dead, but his rising from being on this earth and going to be with the Father, between that and the time immediately before his second coming, which will take place in his perfect timing. It hasn't taken place yet. So before that's fulfilled, and in between the ascension and that, he described what would be taking place during that time. And he said there, uh, many will come and they'll claim to be Jesus, they'll claim to be the Messiah that God sent, and they will deceive many because they won't be him. And then he's also said that there would be wars and rumors of wars, and they would be many. And then he also said that there would be earthquakes, famines and disturbances, and they, not only would they exist, but they would be widespread. So this is important to notice because many of these things have already taken place. Many of these things are already going on. And so because of that, we can see that Jesus, as he's prophesying and telling what would happen in the end of times, what it would look like, and he said this would be the beginning of sorrows. He didn't say that when these things were taking place, that means the end is, is right on us. It means that it's still on the way. But Jesus concluded, excuse me, and then Jesus in verse 9 through 13 of chapter 13 of Mark, he describes specifically not only what would be happening during the time, but what his disciples must expect during the time between his ascension and his second coming. So here's what's going to be taking place. Here's what it's going to look like. And then to his disciples that are sitting there listening to him, here's what you're going to go through. And this is supposed to comfort them, even though it's going to seem like a doomsday list, because the comfort is that he said the enemies of the Lord will deliver up Jesus' disciples to be questioned and to be beaten. And then he said there will be those who will betray their own families during that time and have them put to death. And then he said Jesus' disciples will be hated by all for his name's sake. So you can imagine that they're hearing these words going, why are you telling us that I'd rather not get a preview of this movie? If this is going to take place, please don't tell me ahead of time. But he tells them this so that when it does happen, they can be comforted and go, hey, our leader told us that this would happen. And I think it's funny because many people think that Christianity is a feel-good religion when it can't possibly be because its leader, its forerunner, the one who started it all and, and fulfilled all the Old Testament, he suffered. And so how can we as his disciples expect any less? And yet it's not just for suffering's sake, it's for his glory. There are many people that suffer because they've done things wrong. Yes. 
But in the name of the Lord, when we suffer, he is glorified because we are able to be seen in a different light. If you take a, any piece of anything that's ever been manufactured and you, you never put it to the ultimate test trying to break it, then it's not really proven as something that's sturdy. But we as Christians, when we go through these trials and these tests, what we find is that that's when we're found to be refined. That's when we're proved to be what we really are. And so as, we can, as Jesus concluded this section with a word of encouragement to his disciples, he did not tell them, hold on until he made the trial cease. But what he told them there in verse 13, he says, he who endures to the end shall be saved. And so I wanted to look at that word really quick because the word endure means to, it's translated into a Greek word, which literally means to remain under, you know, and, and you think about it like a weightlifter. If a weightlifter doesn't endure until he does his full lift, what happens is he didn't really lift the weight. But if a weightlifter holds on until he gets it all the way up, then they go, okay, that's the world record. But if he goes, oh, this is too much, and he backs out and he compromises his position, he no longer has the world record. Right. Now, we're not called to be weightlifters, but we are called to remain, to endure under stress and under trials. And so the Lord here is showing them, hey, he who endures to the end shall be saved. He who doesn't compromise because it's convenient. And many times what happens is as Christians, we're, we're, we're tempted to compromise what we believe and know to be true in order to have a convenience for us in that moment. But later what happens is much sorrow because we compromised and we gave up. We, we didn't endure. And the Lord, He desires for us to endure because that's how He is the most glorified. So as we continue this week with what is commonly referred to as, the, this is the Olivet Discourse. And it's just a fancy word for calling it that because this discourse or this teaching was given on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus goes from describing the beginning of sorrows that we just talked about to describing the event that will set off and signal the time of the end. The, the culmination of all of this. Because I think there are many people that think that this world is just going to keep getting better and better. But if they think that, they obviously don't watch the news because it doesn't get better. seems like there's more stuff going on each day. Uh, we were just talking about the, the gentleman that's in the Fast and the Furious movies. And I haven't seen all the recent he ones. Died. Yeah, yeah, he just died in a car crash. And we were just out at the cemetery, and we, were, we went out to let go of some balloons at, at Jerry's graveside for his birthday because he would have been 13 today. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, as I was sitting over there at the, at the, at the cemetery, is that each one of us will, will all pass away. We're, we're not in permanent bodies. We're, we're just not meant to live forever. I mean, at one point, that's what God's intention was, but we sinned, we rebelled against him, and, and because of that, we now die. There's, there's that curse on us. But the truth is, is that though we die, if we are born again, we will never die. The reality is, is that it was appointed for man to die once and then, and then the judgment. But the reality is, is that if we're born again in Christ, that we will not perish. We will, as, imperish, as perishable beings, we will put on what is imperishable. We will take on the glory that God gives us. But anyway, this this beginning of sorrows described, it must take place just before Jesus returns to this earth. And uh, that's called the second coming, which makes sense because last week's signs we called the beginnings of sorrows, or some translations say the birth pangs. Now, if, 
if, if someone goes into labor, that's called birth pangs, you know it's time to get to the hospital. There's a birth that's imminent. And so when he's, we see these signs, when we see these things taking place, Jesus is telling us, be ready. It's coming. I'm coming back and I'm going to judge. He came the first time as a lamb and he'll come the second time as a roaring lion. He will, he will be fierce and he will judge his enemies. So Jesus continues. He goes on describing the end of all things tonight as we continue our study in verse 14 of chapter 13 of Mark. So verse 14 says, So, and I interjected the phrase, considering all that I've just told you in light of what we've just talked about. So, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, and pray that your flight may not be in winter. For in those days there will be tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. So there are many things that take place here that he's talking about, but what he's talking about is the abomination of desolation. It will take place when the Antichrist, this character that's described in the book of Daniel, when the Antichrist goes into the holy place in the temple in Jerusalem and, the, and, uh, and, and places this idol, this image of himself, and he'll tell them, hey, you need to worship this. Before we get there, though, Jesus had just described when the temple would be destroyed in the beginning of Mark 13. So in order for him to, in the future, be able to go into this temple, set up an idol, means that it has to be rebuilt at some point. And so this uh, abomination of desolation, to be in the temple where it ought not be, the temple must have been rebuilt. Remember, um, so in order for the abomination to be set up in the temple, that must mean the temple was rebuilt, but when will it be rebuilt? And this is what happens, and it's described according to Daniel chapter 9. And so uh, I can just read it. If you want to look on your own time, it's like Daniel chapter 9, verse 26 through 27. But it says, Know therefore, and understand, this is a prophecy given to Daniel by God, that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks, and 62 weeks. Now, remember that weeks is talking about weeks of years. So a week of years would be seven years because there's seven days a week. So each day in a week, it's just the way that they would describe it. So from that time, remember that weeks, excuse me, and that multiplies, if you take those 62 weeks and seven weeks, it multiplies to exactly what's considered 483 years, which is when Jesus fulfilled this prophecy by entering into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. And so because of that, or after that, he says in, in uh, Daniel 9, the street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but he's not cut off for himself. See, that's what his death was foretold. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood, and it, until the end of the war, desolations are determined. And then he, the one who is the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant 
with many for one week. So the Antichrist will make a covenant lasting one week of years. What are you doing? Can, can you not do that, please? <laughs> not just for me, but I'm, I'm a little distracted. <laughs> um, so uh, anyway, in the, uh, so the Antichrist will make a covenant lasting one week of years. So that's seven years. Promising peace to the Jews. Which by this time, because they're going through all these tribulations we've already talked about, if he's promising peace to the Jews, what do we know about if you've ever watched the news at all? The, the nation of Israel has never had a time where there was more than a few years of peace. And most of the time, if there was any peace, it really wasn't peace. There was all kinds of wars going on inside of Israel. So because of that, they, of course, would want peace. And we know that just by going through this recent time of sending our troops over to Afghanistan, that peace is always a very wonderful sounding promise when there is no peace. This world that we live in is a constant struggle, a constant battle. There's wars going on between nations. And so to promise, especially the nation of Israel, peace, of course, they want that. They want that more than anything. And so they'll do anything, unfortunately, to get it. So in, um, so verse 15 through 19 shows that in those days there will be tribulation. But I want to make a distinction because the events of verse 14 they signal an unparalleled time of suffering. This isn't just like regular, hey, you know, I got a flat tire, or what's that song on Christian radio that says I lost my keys? You know, it's not that kind of trial. It's not like, oops, I got a flat tire today. It's like there's wars and stuff going on, and it's worse than has ever taken place. It's not something that we've ever experienced. And there will be no doubt those who know the truth that this is the time spoken of by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, verse 31, where he refers to this time as a, he calls it, great tribulation. And Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7 refers to this as the time of Jacob's trouble. So this, isn't, this is for the nation. This is for Israel and Jerusalem. And those of the Jewish nation at that time will go through quite a bit of turmoil. Now, because of these trials, they, want, uh, they will do anything to make an agreement with anyone. And just so they have the, the peace they have always wanted, but it says there, Daniel, in the middle of the week, in the middle of those seven years, three and a half years into the seven years, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. So to quickly recap, the Antichrist will, as part of his peace agreement, with the Jews, he will rebuild the temple and he will restore the sacrificial system. So who wouldn't, as the nation has always wanted to go back to making their sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem, why wouldn't they want somebody to come in and say, hey, we're going to give you peace. And not to mention, we're going to rebuild your temple in Jerusalem, which right now has a, 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 a mosque on top of it that's for worshiping Allah for Muslims. It's not for Christians or, or Jewish people. So who wouldn't want somebody to come in and say, I'll give you peace, I'll restore peace to you, and I'll give you your place of worship back. So he promises that. And halfway through, he says, okay, sacrifices shall cease. You can no longer make sacrifices, but instead I'm going to set up this idol and I'm going to ask you to worship it. It's an image of me. And so at that time, what's going to happen is Jesus tells them, he says, I want you to flee. That's what he was describing there when he said, let those who are in Judea, which was the area surrounding Jerusalem, flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go into the house, because they have little 
kind of places to hang out in the cool of the evening. He says, let them flee. Let them not go back into their houses. Just get the heck out of Dodge. And let him who is in the field, don't go back and get your clothes. There's no time for that. Keep going. Get. And what he's telling them is he's saying, flee to a place called, many believe, Petra. And when they flee there, and actually just as a side note, has anybody in here ever seen any of the Indiana Jones movies? He's, uh, uh, so in the, the place that they're talking about is where they filmed the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's the place of Petra. So that's where he's saying, okay, you need to flee. Well, they're going to flee to Petra, many believe. But when this abomination which causes desolation is set up in the holy place, uh, Jesus instructs those who recognize the event, hey, get the heck out of there. But why does Jesus instruct them to flee here? Well, because the appearance of the abomination that causes desolation that Jesus says was first described by Daniel, it signals the onslaught of persecution for the great tribulation for the Jews. So in Daniel chapter 11, verse 31 through 35, it says, Forces shall be mustered or built up by him, the Antichrist, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress, and then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. This is what Jesus is referring to. He says, those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. In other words, he'll speak great flowing words and he'll flatter them in order to get them on his side. Those who do wickedly. But the people who know their God, I love this, the people that know their God in that time, they shall be strong and they shall carry out great exploits. But those of the people who understand, those who are believers, shall instruct many, and yet for many days they shall fall by the sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join with them by intrigue. In other words, they'll be like, hey, look at all the great things they're doing, and they'll join them. But then it says, and some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end. Now, no matter what your view is on the end of times, what I want to point out is that any time that there's tribulation in your life, what happens is that your life is refined. The things that stress you out, if you really believe that you need to keep doing them, they won't, you'll keep doing them. But if you're, if you're in a time of tribulation and hard times, what you'll find is if something is really bothering you and you don't really want to be involved in it, you won't be involved in it. If you're following Jesus Christ and all of a sudden persecution starts, that's when you separate the men from the boys or the women from the, from the girls. You, you separate those who really believe from those who are just kind of there because they got some benefit from it. And so that's what he's saying. During that time, you'll know who's really a believer or not because if they believe in Jesus Christ, it could cost them their life. And in the time of tribulation, in seven-year tribulation, those who are believers will die for their faith. They'll be martyred. And so... And then in Daniel chapter 12, verse 9 through 11, it says, Many shall be purified, made white, and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, in other words, when the Antichrist says, Okay, no more daily sacrifices, and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. He gives an exact number. That's around three and a half years. And so at the end of that three and a half years, the second three and a half years of the seven, that's when Jesus Christ will show up. And that's when uh, 
<laughs> if you're an enemy of the Lord, you better watch out because the Lord's going to judge. So at the point when all this takes place and persecution starts, it will seem as if there was no restraint on those who are the enemies of the Lord. And that's for a time there won't be any restraint. Satan will have complete ability to do whatever he wants. His people will, but God's people will be killed, persecuted, and tortured, and martyred for their faith in the one true God. But God's hand is not slack that he cannot save. Because notice in Daniel 12, it says that from the point that this all starts, you can count the days until Jesus comes to judge all, the, all of his enemies. So it's not like he's just saying, hey, you can just have it, I'm walking away. He's saying, go ahead, have your way, have your heyday, because it's going to be short-lived. Because I'm going to come back, and I'm going to make things right. So verse 20 of Mark 13 says, Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. So unless the Lord had set an exact amount of days, no one would survive. But for the sake of his chosen people, the Jews, God shortened the days. So, verse 21. Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ. Or look, he is there. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, see, I have told you all things beforehand. Well, Father, um, I just want to pray real quick um, as things have kind of been distracting tonight. Lord, please uh, be with those two. I don't know where they're going or where they came from. Uh, but Lord, please bless them. And Lord, uh, I just pray that you'd help us to uh, not be distracted, but just to be ready to receive your word. Lord, uh, clear my mind even. I'm easily distracted. Uh, but Lord, uh, thank you that you are greater than our minds even. Lord, clear us and uh, teach us in Jesus' name. <laughs> so, verse 21. In that time, just like the time before they come, before this all takes place, before the abomination of desolation, he had said that people would come and say that they were Jesus Christ or that they were the Messiah. But in verse 21, it says, Then if anyone says to you, Look, here's the Christ, or look, he's there. Don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise. They'll show signs. They'll show wonders to deceive. That's the point of it. If possible, to deceive even those who are the chosen of God. He says, But take heed. Listen. See, I have told you these things beforehand. See, he's warning us. And he always does this in order to comfort those who do believe and to warn, to refine those who don't believe, to kind of scare the bejeepers out of them. I remember when I first read the whole Bible, I read the book of Revelation. You may not believe this, but I was sitting in a deer stand and I was bored to tears. There were no deer. And so I'm sitting there and I've got a... And I had read some books, and I would, you know, every book I read, it was so short, four hours would go by, I'd be like, I need some more book. So I found one book that had lots of words on my shelf, the New Testament, given to me by a Gideon. So I got my bright orange, Hunter Orange, Gideon Bible, and I got it out and started reading it. Now, I'd never read the Bible before, and I wasn't raised in a Christian family. So I start reading cover to cover, like I would any other book. And I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. First of all, I was really confused, because I was like, didn't I just read the story in Matthew? Well, of course I did, because it was the same story, just through different people's eyes. But then I got to the book of Revelation, 
Now, deer season can be fruitful if you fill yourself with the Word of God. It can also be fruitful if you get some, some, some overly, right? But the reality was, as I read through the book of Revelation, I remember reading it, being scared to death. And it does. If you read these things and you're not a believer, you're just like, man, this is not good. It's all going to go down. <laughs> but the reality is, is that Jesus told us this, not so we would have our pants scared off, unless, of course, we were being completely rebellious against him, but so that we would be comforted. So at this point, he says, false prophets will try to convince the Jews that their long-awaited Messiah has come, and it's them, even showing signs and wonders to deceive people. But what I want to point out is if, if you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he was raised from the dead, that he died for your sins, then you'll believe anything. What's that country song that says, you got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything? That's the reality. If you don't know the truth, then it can't set you free. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And it's because you won't fall for any of the, anything that's false because you'll know the real McCoy. So in 2 Timothy chapter 3, anyway, before I get there, at this point, I want to make a distinction. If you trust in Jesus for your salvation and you follow him as your Lord, you will not see the events that we described in today's message. That will, will be rapture, according to my take on the end times. Basically, we'll be taken up as the church, from the church age, we'll go to be the, with the Lord, with the, uh, the, the supper of the Lamb. But during that time, according to the book of Revelation, John kind of gets a vision of what's taking place on earth. And the things that he describes, you don't want to be here for. So the Lord saves us out of that. He pulls us out of that. But for a time, it seems that the Jews go through this time of tribulation, any of the Jews that don't believe in Jesus as Messiah. And because they rejected their Messiah that came in the first place, they, they have no salvation. There are many that teach, well, uh, they can be saved, though, because even though Jesus came, if they follow the Torah, which means their Old Testament law, then they can be saved. But they can't. There's no salvation in any other name but Jesus Christ. That's the way God fulfilled the Old Testament. They no longer have to come to him by the, the sacrifice of blood of bulls and goats. So Jesus said, um, but in the meantime, before these events take place, there are many who seek to deceive and draw people away from the truth. And how are we to be able to tell the difference between a true teacher of God and a false teacher who will try to deceive us? He makes that distinction there. Um, but in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul teaches this young pastor by the name of Timothy. And he talks to him and he, he shares with him the truth. And he does just the same thing that Jesus did for his disciples there. And Paul teaches his disciple, Timothy, in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. He said, know this, in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves. Now, none of us know anybody like that. They'll be lovers of money. They'll be boasters. They'll be proud. They'll be blasphemers. Disobedient to parents. Unthankful. Unholy. Unloving. Unforgiving. Slanderers without self-control. Brutal. Despisers of good. Traitors. Headstrong. Haughty. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. By the, point, by, by the way, it scares me that in here, one of the things that he uses to describe perilous times and the men that will come to deceive, uh, one of the descriptions there is disobedient to parents. That's a big, that's a big indicator that they're not right. And so, uh, and take it from me because I, I was one. Uh, but verse four says, traitors, 
headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. From such people, he said to Timothy, turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households. They make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then go down to verse uh, 8, about halfway through, it says, These also resist the truth, they're men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be made manifest to all. And then verse 10 says, But you, Timothy, have carefully followed my doctrine, my manner of life, purpose, faith, patience, law, uh, love, and perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch. Then verse 12 says, All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So he's kind of echoing the same thing that Jesus was teaching them way ahead of time. But now Timothy has started this young church in Ephesus, and he's telling them the same message. He's saying, hey, look, there will be people that come in to deceive. But then he tells them in verse 14 there, he says, but you, being a believer in Christ, but you, you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So Paul finishes with an instruction. He says, yeah, they're coming. But what I want to tell you about their coming is that you need to be ready. And one of the ways that you can be ready is be filled with the Spirit of God. Be filled with His Word. Know God's Word. Know His will for your life. And then when things come along, they won't shake you. They won't be able to. Because your trust, your faith will be put in the one who can save you, not, not despite all of that, but through all of that. You'll be able to endure through that persecution. You'll be able to endure through those people that are trying to deceive you because you'll know the truth. So verse 16 says of that same book, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. The phrase there means inspired by God, but it literally means it is God breathed. It's something that God spoke. He spoke it through these men and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So as he's telling them here, the word of God is depend, it's the only dependable light in this dark world. According to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, he said, we've seen, we've held, we've, we've been a part of all that happened on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter told them. But the more sure word that we have of prophecy is what Jesus Christ taught us from his very lips. It's the one thing that we can base our, our whole hope on. Jesus has told us beforehand what to expect and what to avoid, and we must take time to pay special attention to his words. His word is dependable, it's durable, so we must trust it. And that will be proven whether we trust it or not when things come our way. So, when Jesus says there in verse 22, ah, no. So we'll end today in verse 24 of Mark 13. He says, in those days, after the tribulation, here's what will happen. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. I think that's interesting because the sun was darkened on the day of Jesus' death. As he returns, uh, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall. 
the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels, gather together his elect, his chosen, from the four winds, from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. So Jesus, when he comes back, all these things will take place. Seems the power that holds the world together will all of a sudden just give up. And all of a sudden he'll return. And when he returns, he will return in power and glory so that all these things that we see and know in this earth that can be shaken will be shaken. But when he shows up, he will be proven to be who he always said he was, the son of God, the one that God would give the kingdom of his to. He will be the one who will inherit it. So, but here in verse 24 points to a marked distinction. It's a distinction between that which is false, the false prophets in verse 22, and the true coming of Christ in verse 26. He starts off the first part. He says, many will come and say that they're me, but they'll do it to deceive. When I come, you'll know it's me. There will be no doubt that it's me. He describes his return as the Son of Man coming in the clouds. And this passage recalls directly from Daniel 7, in which the Son of Man receives the kingdom of God from God the Father. So to end, Jesus will return. Many don't believe in the return of Jesus Christ, but he will return. There will be accountability for what we've done in this life. My question is, will you be ready for his return? Does this scare the bejeepers out of you? Or does it cause you to go, hey, I want as many people to know him as possible. That's what it should do. If it scares you, then just get right with them. Jesus will return. But tonight is an opportunity to consider, uh, are you ready for his return? Because we're going to take communion. It's important to remember that we take communion in order to examine ourselves 